Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'm not entirely convinced this isn't the beginning of the apocalypse. I'm writing this episode at the start of 2021, as COVID deaths in the United States have passed 500,000, and our country has just survived an insurrection at the Capitol. How bonkers is that sentence? Imagine if we could go back in time and speak to someone from 2019 and tell them what's going on now. They would freak the fuck out. They'd wonder how we navigate in this strange dystopian world. And they'd want to know, when did it start? When did the United States pass the point of no return? I think a very good estimate for the beginning of the end would be March 13th, 2020. And fittingly, it was a Friday the 13th too. That was the day I first understood that COVID was going to directly impact my life. I was working on a project in New Orleans, hashtag humblebrag, Months of planning, lots of people involved, and suddenly, everyone was sent home. We were told to get on planes immediately and in case TSA shut down the airports. That's when things started to get real for me. If you're an American, think back to the day that shit got real for you. I bet it's pretty close to March 13th. My point is, everyone was stressing the fuck out that day. In Louisville... Brianna Taylor had just come off four overnight shifts at the hospital where she worked as an ER tech. She went home to her apartment, where she got into bed and snuggled up to Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend. They watched a movie until she fell asleep. She and Kenneth had just gotten more serious after Brianna had finally put her troubled ex-boyfriend in her rear view. Her ex was a deep-for-trouble guy named Jamarcus Glover, a local drug dealer who'd spent hard time in the slammer. Shortly after midnight, Brianna awoke to the sound of banging on her front door. Bang, bang, bang. Who is it? She called out. But nobody answered. Kenneth grabbed his gun, thinking it was Jamarcus trying to break in. They stepped into the hallway, moving toward the front door to see who was there. Suddenly, 
the door exploded inward. Kenneth could see two human shapes in shadow on the other side. He aimed low because he didn't want to kill anyone. And he fired. The bullet hit the intruder in the leg. At that moment, all hell broke loose. Bullets came from every direction, coming down the hallway, through windows, through walls, through a sliding glass door. Brianna was hit five or six times. She bled out on the floor and died. Kenneth survived. But it wasn't her former boyfriend, Jamarcus, who'd broken in. It was the Louisville police. The man who killed Brianna Taylor was a cop named Miles Cosgrove. He and his brothers in blue were after Jamarcus Glover's drugs and cash, neither of which was actually in the apartment. Any other time, Brianna's death would barely make the metro section of the Courier-Journal. Shit like this goes down in major cities across the United States all the time, and has for decades. But this time, it happened during a perfect storm of fear and boredom, when everyone was already stressing the fuck out and had nothing to do but watch the news at home. Brianna's senseless murder in that small apartment in a crummy section of Louisville was the match that finally set the tinder ablaze. As Stephen King writes, great events turn on small hinges. So, later, when the Louisville prosecutors subverted the grand jury process in order to keep the policemen from going to prison, as prosecutors across the country have done for decades, they couldn't do it in secret. Everyone was watching. What else did any of us have to do but watch? And those Louisville prosecutors got caught trying to manipulate a grand jury to get the outcome they wanted. And many of us were left wondering, the hell is a grand jury anyway? What is this super secret part of the judicial system and how is it supposed to work? Let's unpack that together. This is the philosophy of crime and I'm your host, James Renner. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. A grand jury is just what it sounds like. A jury that's bigger than a regular jury. It's a group of 16 to 23 citizens who are chosen randomly from the region where the court is located. In the United States, grand juries review criminal cases before a suspect is formally charged in order to determine if there's enough evidence to warrant a prosecution. Grand jurors come to the courthouse and they listen to the prosecutor who presents the state's case against a criminal. Usually these are high crimes, murder, rape, drug trafficking. The same grand jury often hears several cases in a day, assembly line style. Grand juries can also be used as a tool to investigate crimes. Grand jurors have the ability to compel witnesses to testify and to subpoena evidence. On the surface, the grand jury is there to protect an uncharged suspect from being indicted on a bogus charge. If there's not enough evidence, that suspect is never indicted, and so his name is not tarnished in the newspapers and the allegations remain secret. There's another reason for secrecy, too. It allows confidential informants to testify without fear of retribution. In theory, this sounds like a good idea, right? But a grand jury is different from a trial jury in a few other important ways. For one, there is no process to vet potential grand jurors. For public trials, jurors are dismissed if they are biased against the accused. Not so with grand jurors. They're never asked what they believe. They're allowed to be biased. Also, grand juries do not need to reach a unanimous verdict. Prosecutors need only a majority of grand jurors to agree that there's enough evidence to charge a suspect to get their indictment. And while the burden of proof at trial is beyond all reasonable doubt, grand jurors can side with the prosecution if they believe the evidence rises to probable cause. The prosecutor who presents a case to the grand jury is not required to offer evidence that's favorable to the accused, and reporters are not allowed in the courtroom. All of these stipulations are favorable to the prosecution, so it should come as no surprise that 99% of cases brought before a grand jury result in an indictment. 99%. There's this famous judge, a guy named Saul Watchler, who once said that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. Watchler was chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals when he said that, and not for nothing. But a few years later, Watchler was indicted on charges of extortion, racketeering, and blackmail. He tried to strong-arm his girlfriend, threatening to release a sex tape. Anyway, he went to prison, and when he got out, he became a critic for The New Yorker. And so it goes. Here's the thing about grand juries. They only indict the cases the prosecutor chooses to submit, which is why, when police kill someone, they often avoid any real charges because the prosecutor never presents them. After all, there's no motivation for the prosecutor to convict a cop. There are two cogs in the same machine. Prosecutors rely on detectives to make their cases. If they start indicting cops, some bad things could happen. For instance, maybe the next time they need a detective to testify, he'll be reluctant to do so. Also, the police union controls a tremendously loyal voter block, and in the United States, 
many local prosecutors are elected. If a prosecutor were to convict an officer, the union is going to vote for someone else. Also, if a cop is indicted, it could make all their previous testimony in court suspect. A dirty cop could lead to overturned convictions and appeals. For all those reasons and more, many prosecutors simply choose not to present cop cases to a grand jury. This conflict of interest is why the United States is one of only two countries that still use this grand jury system. What's the other one? Liberia. Don't worry, I didn't know where it was either. It's a country in West Africa. A grand jury hearing is, for all intents and purposes, a secret court. We never know what happens in that room, so we must have faith that the system is trustworthy, even though it's run by fallible human beings. But as the Roman poet Juvenal wrote, quis custodiat ipsus custodis? Who watches the watchman? The philosophical conundrum is this. Should we ever allow government officials to act in secret for our best interest? Is our concern for privacy, here the privacy of the accused and the privacy of confidential informants, is that enough to justify a secret court? I want to tell you about two philosophers today. The first is a fellow named Karl Popper. Popper was born in Vienna in 1902, at a time when the city was basically the epicenter of modern thought. Freud was there smoking his pipe. That's where Popper grew up, soaking in all that new knowledge. He went to college at 16 and fell in love with Marxism, to everyone according to their need, etc. But then, in June 1919, Popper attended a demonstration where police shot and killed eight socialist protesters. That incident left Popper disillusioned with Marxism, and he began leaning toward even more open forms of government. He moved to New Zealand in 1937 and got a job in the philosophy department at Canterbury University College in Christchurch. It was there, during World War II, that Popper wrote his most famous book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. The first half of the book is all about how Plato was a real D-bag. As you may recall, Plato believed in a world of perfect forms. Along that line of thought, Plato believed that there was an ideal form of government that had existed in ancient cultures, but we had corrupted and ruined it by changing its laws and chipping away at its power. Plato's book, The Republic, is his outline for this lost government, and Popper said it was all elitist bullshit. Plato wanted to divide the population into classes, rulers, auxiliaries, and producers. These classes were never meant to mix socially. Each person in Plato's Republic would know their place, and they would be ruled by a philosopher king, who is the only one smart enough to make any real decisions. There's a really cool article by Nathaniel to Katz that goes deeper into Popper's smackdown of Plato. If you're interested, the link is in the liner notes. Popper thought a better way of doing things was to make governments completely open and transparent. We don't need a philosopher king telling us how to live our life. We don't want secret courts or clandestine agencies ruling over us. Popper believed that any government that allows a small group of people to make decisions for everyone ultimately leads to a reduction of liberties and the inevitable rise of asshat fascists like Hitler. What Popper is talking about is the creation of an open-source government, a government that is less like a republic and more like Wikipedia. 
This is where our second philosopher appears. In 1947, Popper is teaching at the London School of Economics when he gets a very precocious student whose name was George Schwartz. Young George was originally from Budapest, and his father edited a literary magazine written in Esperanto. Do you guys know what Esperanto is? It's kind of wild. It's an entirely new language that was created in 1887 by an ophthalmologist. It was super easy to learn, and it was specifically designed to be an international language, a second language for everyone on the planet, so that we had a way to communicate with anyone anywhere. It was created to promote world peace, a way to unite us all. It was very groovy, is what I'm saying. Anyway, George learned Esperanto from his dad, and it plays a part in his life story. So George was very keen on Popper's notion of open governments and free markets, both politically and financially. Outside of school, George got a job at a bank where the executives realized he was quite skilled at what's known as arbitrage, making money by taking advantage of price fluctuations between different economies. That sounds pretty boring, doesn't it? Stay with me. Shit gets crazy fast. George got his degree in London, then took Popper's ideas with him to the United States. He got a job with a New York City investment firm analyzing European stocks. While he was there, George developed an economic theory of his own called reflexivity. Popper had figured out that governments that rely on representatives are inherently unfair because the representative thinks of his own self-interest before the interests of those he's representing. George recognized that stock exchanges are likewise unfair because they're controlled by individual participants who sometimes just get mad at businesses for no good reason and dump their stock. Think of a trader who waits forever in the drive through at McDonald's only to find out that the ice cream machine is broken again. That guy sells his McDonald's stock because fuck him. Now, if every ice cream machine goes down at once, pissing off every trader with a sweet tooth, McDonald's stock tumbles. In September of 1992, George noticed that the United Kingdom was trying to fiddle with the free market in Europe. There was this thing, kind of like Brexit in reverse, where the Bank of England was trying to link the value of their money, the pound, to the value of currency throughout Europe. It has to do with interest rates and currency reserves, blah, blah, blah. The point is, George noticed that humans were trying to interfere with a free system, and because of pauper, he knew that this would soon lead to chaos. So he seized an opportunity, and he used his money to bet against the effort. He shorted the English pound, and it worked. The only downside was that when he did it, it kind of broke the Bank of England. The Brits referred to September 16, 1992 as Black Wednesday, and it cost the UK Treasury $3.3 billion. George used his newfound money and fame to pivot into politics, creating the Open Society Foundation, which uses Popper's book as its Bible. The Society's aim is to advance justice, education, public health, and independent media. Its driving mission, though, is to foster open governments around the world. George's foundation soon became the second largest philanthropy group in the world, second only to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. George became very passionate about American politics. He saw the same inherent weakness in our Constitution that he saw in the economy of Europe. 
Our republic is run by people who think of themselves before they think of their constituents. Our senators and representatives are elected. Elections cost money. Corporations donate money. Then, when the congressman is elected, the corporation goons come knocking, asking for favors. And the congressman helps them out, even if it's not in the best interest of the people he represents. Why? Because he has to be elected again in another two years. Case in point, when Congress was briefed on the COVID virus in January 2020, four senators, Kelly Leffler of Georgia, James Inhofe of Oklahoma, Diane Feinstein of California, and Richard Burr of North Carolina, dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock before the public knew how bad the disease was going to be, before the stock market could crash like they knew it would. Fuck those guys, am I right? The one thing our Constitution has going for it, the only thing that keeps it together when everyone is looking out for number one, is the series of checks and balances that exist between the branches of government. The Constitution was written by people smart enough to know that humans are self-serving, greedy bastards. But Popper dreamed of a government that kept absolutely no secrets from its citizens. And his student, George Schwartz, invested his money into making this idea a reality. By doing this, George discovered the flaw in Popper's idea, because even in an open society with no secrets, self-motivated interests can still manipulate the truth. Here's what George has to say about that. Politicians will respect reality only if the public cares about the truth and punishes politicians when it catches them in deliberate deception. By the way, George is still around, and it's likely you've heard of him, even if you don't recognize his story. You see, his father changed their family's last name during World War II. Remember how he was big into that made-up language, Esperanto? Well, he liked how to soar sounded in Esperanto. And that's how George Schwartz became George Soros. Because Brianna Taylor was murdered at the very beginning of COVID, there was a lot of time for outcry before the grand jury reached its conclusions in Louisville. Protests went on for months. Tensions flared. But Judgment Day came at last on September 23rd, when the Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, held a press conference to announce the grand jury's decision. They were charging a single officer, Brett Hankinson, with wanton endangerment. The newspapers were told that the grand jury had declined to indict any of the police officers for Brianna's murder. Look, justice is not often easy, Cameron said at a press conference. It does not fit the mold of public opinion and does not conform to shifting standards. We were to believe that he tried his best, but that darn grand jury, they just didn't think there was enough evidence to indict. In response, Louisville lost its damned mind, and for good reason. Wanton endangerment. What is that even? It sounds like something you'd get in trouble for at a Chinese restaurant. Not a charge you'd get for killing an innocent woman sleeping in her apartment after a long day of saving people's lives. You know who else was confused about it all? The grand jury. Because it's a secret court and grand jurists are usually barred from speaking to the media, Cameron must have thought his ruse would work. But then the jury members decided, yeah, fuck it and went and told their story anyway. The grand jury did not have homicide offenses explained to them, said one juror to the New York Times. 
the grand jury never heard about those laws. Questions were asked about additional charges, and the grand jury was told that there would be none because the prosecutor didn't feel they could make them stick. Another juror called it a blatant cover-up. It was a betrayal, juror number two told CBS News. They didn't give us the charges up front when they gave us all that testimony over 20-something hours. And then to say that these are the only charges they're coming up with, it's like, well, what did we just sit through? Cameron had pulled the wool over their eyes, like prosecutors have done for decades, expecting to get away with it. But this time he got caught. Here in Cleveland, we saw the dangers of the grand jury system during the Tamir Rice case. If you haven't heard, Cleveland police officer Timothy Lohman shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice as he was playing with a toy gun at a neighborhood park. A video shows the officer shooting at him before the cop car even stops, before anyone can ascertain what was really going on with the middle schooler. Our prosecutor at the time was this guy named Tim McGinty, an old-school Cleveland politician with deep pockets and a, and a hunger for power. You know what McGinty did when he presented the case against the officer to a grand jury? He brought in expert witnesses to give favorable testimony for the cop. The prosecutor defended the accused in a secret court. I mean, what the fuck? But America is a country that idolizes tradition. And grand juries have been around so long here that we just don't care to think about them unless we're confronted with their weirdness when police get away with murder. Ask around. The majority of United States citizens have no idea how it works and why we have it at all. It just is. But it doesn't have to be. Other countries have gotten rid of the grand jury system of secret courts decades ago. There's a simple replacement, in fact. It's called a preliminary inquiry or simply a preliminary hearing. A prosecutor presents the broad strokes of their case in front of a judge. The defendant is in court with his lawyer, who can question the witnesses. Just like grand juries, the burden of proof is kept low because the case is still developing. But the judge will have some idea if there's merit for an indictment, and it will be out in the open. Nothing secret. No room for funny business. This method is better for everyone involved, even the prosecutors, because it keeps them from being blamed for indicting cops. It's not the prosecutor deciding to bring the charges. It's the judge. But right now, it's the secrecy of the system that creates opportunity for corruption. A more open government, one free of private agendas, the kind of government George Soros believes in, is a more equitable system for everyone. But until then, ham sandwiches beware. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Talking Pints, a clever way to mix up a fresh conversation. Available now at Uncommon Goods. 
Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.